You're listening to a sermon from our pastor, Brian Payne. We would love to have you worship God with us this Sunday at 1045 in the morning and at six o'clock in the evening as we make, nurture, and equip disciples of Jesus Christ in Auburn and throughout the world. Well, let's pray and we'll get into our, our text. Lord, thank you for your mercy and grace to us. We do thank you that we have a great high priest whose name is love and grace and truth and justice and righteousness and we know all of these supremely through his cross and his resurrection. Lord, we pray today we could behold him today by your spirit. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As I shared last Sunday night, I took my son Seth Friday week ago uh, to go spend some time with and work out with one of my uh, former strength and conditioning coaches, Rocky Colburn. Rocky Colburn was also uh, a significant player in my conversion um, he was there. Uh, when I was first converted, I was working with him as a GA, and, and uh, he, he played a massive role, not only in my conversion, but in my early growth. And I forever love, and, I love him and am so very grateful for him. Just a side note, if, you, if you've ever watched Bo Over the Top, I have a feeling you have. Um, <clears throat> if you're looking at Alabama from the left side, coming from the left end, number 33 gets there to Bo as he goes over the top. That's Rocky Colburn, and he's always told me if I'd just got there a little, just a half a second earlier, and I've always told him if you'd gotten there a half a second earlier, he would have taken you with him. <laughs> um, but he, he told me an interesting story when we were there of how uh, the science of strength and conditioning for athletes really developed in the 90s. And the reason for that is because that science was developed in the communist bloc countries in the 70s and 80s, often through uh, immoral means. Uh, they would do uh, all kinds of experiments on these athletes. It was just immoral. But they developed the science. And after the communist bloc countries fell, uh, these scientists and coaches came to the West and sold the programs. And, and so uh, these strength conditioning programs really developed into a science but prior to that, it was less of a science in the 80s. Uh, it was more about mental toughness, expanding your mind, if you will. And, and so when I was in school under Rocky Colburn and Rich Wingo, it was less of a science and, and more about just uh, developing you in your character. Uh, and there were two parts to the off-season conditioning program uh, back then. And the first part was what we called lower gym, where we would meet in a basement gym below uh, the, the Coliseum gym where the basketball team played. They would turn the heat on. They would lock the doors so that no one could sneak out. And there were garbage cans lined up in each corner of lower gym. And I asked one of the uh, upperclassmen my freshman year, what are these garbage cans doing in here? And he said, you'll find out. And, and I did. <laughs> Um, that was lower gym, and it was brutal. And then you had summer conditioning that would begin essentially in mid-May, and a lot of that work was done on the track mid-afternoon, one or two o'clock in the afternoon in June or July. Again, very brutal. Um, every day was like a day of accounting, a day of reckoning. And, and as a result of that, you lived your life in light of that daily day of reckoning, that day of judgment, if you will. It, it informed everything you did. 
It informed what time you went to bed, how much water you drank during the day, the kind of food you were eating, how you spent your discretionary time. Every day was a day of judgment. But there was ultimately a day of reckoning, we, the last day, if you will, before two-a-day started. That was the conditioning test. If you've ever been an athlete, you know about those conditioning tests. And the conditioning test was the, the day of reckoning par excellence. It was, a, it was a challenging day. It was the day where they want to find out where you are. And so you spent your entire off season with that informing your life. You thought about it all the time. You thought about the day, if you will, of judgment. That was one of the motivating factors for every player. It informed everything. You saw life through that lens. But it wasn't the only motivating factor. There was also the day of hope, the day of promise. It was the day you put on that uniform on a Saturday afternoon. And, and so the players lived in light of those two days, the day of judgment, but also the, the, the day of promise and, and the day of hope. Uh, it sobered you. It also gave you uh, joy. And, and it exalted your heart in a sense. Well, essentially, that's what John's been doing in the first section of his gospel. He's been speaking about a day. A day that's called eternal life. When all the enemies of God are vanquished and, and God's people come into the joy of the Lord and they see Jesus for who he is and they become like him. No more sin, no more temptation to sin, no more suffering, no more sadness, no more grief, no more tears. All the former things have passed away. It's the day of hope. But John has also spoken about the day of judgment that is coming. And so the, the Christian lives in light of both days. The day of judgment sobers the Christian, it and therefore the Christian is informed by that day. But then there's that day of days, eternal life, and the new heavens and the new earth. It's a day of joy. So it's a sober joy that the Christian, the healthy Christian, has informed by those days. Well, that's what John has been doing this entire uh, first section of his gospel. And, and we saw in verse 36, Jesus's last words before Thursday night. So chapter 13 begins, it's Thursday, the night before the cross. And in John chapter 12, at the last part of this section of verse 36, it's probably Tuesday afternoon, and he has warned them. He has given one last warning to those who've not yet trusted in him. And he said, uh, the light is among you for a little while longer. Verse 35, walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light... And here's his final words in the Gospel of John to those who've not trusted in him because now he's going to direct his attention to the believers starting at John 13. Believe in the light that you may become sons of the light. And then when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. And so 
Verses 37 to 43, John gives us an inspired commentary on why many would not believe in him. And then we come to this final section of the first section of John, verses 44 to 50. And, and I think what we're going to see here, this is a, an inspired summary of the first half of John's gospel. This is, if you will, John writing a summary of all that Jesus has said. This is a, a literary device, if you will, verses 44 to 50, because Jesus has already departed. And now John, with this literary device, is going to sum up the first 12 chapters of his gospel before he transitions to the, the book of passion, which is, takes us from verse chapter 13 all the way to the end of the book. And, and what we're going to see here, and, and remember that the whole entire purpose of John's writing is so that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, and that by believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, we would have life in his name. He's going to give us in this summary text four reasons why we must believe in Jesus. Four reasons. And the first reason we see, starting in verse 44, is that to believe in Jesus is to believe in God. Let me say that again. To believe in Jesus is to believe in God. Now notice in verse 44, he says, and Jesus cried out. Again, in my estimation, Jesus has already departed. And John is summarizing what Jesus has cried out in the first 12 chapters. So he's summarizing to us. This is an epilogue, if you will, to the first section of the book. And Jesus cried out. And that verb is so very critical in the Gospels because when the Gospel tells us that Jesus cried out, it, it's telling us something very important. For instance, it's been used five times in the Gospels. The first time, we see it actually in Matthew and Mark, he cried out on the cross. So this was a real man experiencing real agony beyond anything every, any human has ever experienced because he's experiencing the full-orbed wrath of God for sinners. And Matthew and Mark tells us he cried out. We also see a third time he cries out in John 7 when he cried out that he was the, the living water and that you must drink of him. And if you drink of him, you will never thirst again. And then a fourth time we see him crying out is in John 11 when he comes to the tomb of Lazarus and he cried out, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus came forth. So this tells us when he cries out, these are some important words. And here we see in the last section of John 12, Jesus cried out. It's a way of emphasizing that, uh, what he's about to say, which is a summary of the first 12 chapters. And notice it says, Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me, believes in me, not in me, but in him who sent me. Again, this is a summary of what he's been saying throughout John 1 to 12. Compare this with John 5, 24, for instance. Whoever hears my word 
and believes him who sent me, same language, will not be condemned, but has eternal life. He has crossed over from death to life. In John 10, verse 30, Jesus had said, I and the Father are one. So knowing Jesus means knowing God, knowing the Father. Loving Jesus means loving God, loving the Father. Believing in Jesus means believing in God, believing in the Father. What is God like? John says there's one answer. God is like Jesus. And this is a summary of the first 12 chapters. Later in John 14, 9, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Such important words. And I want you to note in light of that, that three times in these final verses of chapter 12, Jesus refers to God as the one who sent me, which tells me they are one, and yet there's distinction in the Godhead, and yet they're on the same page. I've used the term inseparable operation. Uh, there's an inseparable operation between the Father and the Son, and we could add the Holy Spirit. Jesus was sent in a joint mission, to accomplish a joint mission. The first missionary of the church was Jesus. Later, uh, Jesus will tell his disciples in chapter 20, verse 21, uh, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Very important words for our missionary calling. That, that's the basis of the missionary calling of the church. As the Father sent the Son, he has sent the disciples. Yes, the first 12 but then uh, the church is built on the foundation, right, of the apostles and the prophets. Now, we live in a culture that embraces spiritual and moral relativism. Now, why is that? Uh, it's not because the law has not been written on every human heart, because it has. It's because we are largely becoming an atheistic culture. And, and if God is dead, if God does not exist then to be consistent with that, anything goes because there's nothing objective. There is no objective truth. And we see that being played out every day uh, in the news, don't we, and in our culture. So the notion that we would proselytize someone, that is, seek to lead someone to faith in Jesus, that is considered taboo in a culture that is growing as an atheistic culture. But Jesus himself says he was sent by the Father. And he was sent to seek and to save that which is lost. And he has said he has passed the baton. He has passed the baton to his disciples. And given the implications of John's point here, that is to believe in Jesus, is to believe in God, it would be an act of spiritual brutality on our part, not to pick up that baton. Because to believe in Jesus is to believe in God. 
Therefore, the nations must believe in Jesus. And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they hear without evangelists? How will they hear without missionaries? This is the basis of missions. But the second point we see here, uh, to believe in Jesus, yes, is to believe in God, but it also means to be delivered from the power of darkness. Look with me in verse 46. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. So when Adam sinned as our federal head, Adam represented us in the garden. Now, where do I get that theology from? From the apostle Paul, among others, through one man sin entered the world and death through sin and death to all men for all have sinned in Adam. When Adam sinned, a shroud of darkness came over everything God had created, beginning with his image bearers. A curse came over uh, the created order. But just as Genesis 1 tells us that God said, let there be light in his first creative act, Jesus, the true word of God, came as light. And so it's like God was saying at the incarnation of Jesus, let there be light. And he came to pierce the darkness. And let me submit this to you. In spite of present appearances, everything outside of Jesus is darkness. No matter how moral it may appear or beneficial it may appear, or alluring it may be. Everything outside of Jesus is darkness. And I want you to consider the two contexts where Jesus has already said, I am the light of the world. Again, remember this passage is a summary passage of all that's been said in the first 12 chapters. In John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. What is the context? Well, the context is the woman caught in adultery. And the resulting judgment that came from the religious leaders. So not only is her sin indicted there, but also the hatred and the vitriol of these spiritual leaders. And Jesus is saying, not only is her adultery representative of darkness, but so is your hate, hatred of one of God's image bearers. And he said, I am the light of the world. Outside of Jesus is darkness. And then in John chapter 9, we saw him use that same language in John chapter 9, verse 5, in the context of the man who had been born blind uh, by no sin of his own. We saw that as natural evil. And we, we looked at that passage and, and, and recognized the fact that even natural evil is a result of the canopy of darkness coming on the earth because of Adam's sin, even though this man had not sinned to bring about his own blindness. But we also saw his, his blindness was also a parable of the condition of every sinner apart from Jesus, the light of the world. So his physical blindness was a parable of our spiritual blindness. And Jesus said, in that context, I am the light of the world. Jesus enlightens our eyes by his spirit and by his, his word. And so this is a summary text to remind us, a very important text 
to remind us that to believe in Jesus is to be delivered from the power of darkness. If you have not trusted in Jesus this morning, you may be the most moral person in this room and you live in darkness. You need Jesus to enlighten your eyes to God's glory in the face of the Son of God. The third point we see here, uh, yes, to believe in Jesus is to believe in God. To believe in Jesus is to be delivered from darkness, the power of darkness. But third, to believe in Jesus is to be saved from judgment. Look with me in verse 47. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. Now, some people will take that one verse or half a verse and make that as their mantra, their, their motto over life. He says, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. This is just a reminder that a, a text without a context becomes a pretext, right? So what is he saying here? I did not, he says, I did, did not come to judge, uh, but I came to save the world. Earlier, we had seen, again, this is a summary of all that he has said. We had seen in chapter 3, verse 17, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And it's easy to take verses like that and disregard other verses that don't fit your sensibilities. That's what liberals do. Liberals don't just completely reject the Bible generally. Um, the, the, the evil one comes as an angel of light. What they do is they take certain verses and they become a canon within a canon. All right? And so they take verses like that and say, Jesus didn't come to judge. He came to save the world. And now this is, this, verses like that, though, have perplexed many because there are other verses that indicate and make clear that Jesus did come to judge. So, for instance, in John chapter 5, verse 22 the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. So what gives? Is John contradicting himself? Of course he's not contradicting himself. Um, the reality is, in the first advent... Jesus came to save the world. Those who don't receive his, his provision, though, would be condemned. And when he returns, he will come, as 2 Peter tells, or 2 Timothy tells us, to judge the living and the dead. And so in his first advent, he comes on a donkey. In his second advent, he comes on a white horse. Now, Jesus has spoken of this union that he has with the Father that is so indivisible. Unity in essence and, and power and glory. In fact, the only way you can even distinguish between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit is to use the language of this relations of origin, eternal relations of origin, where the Father is the one who begets, the Son is the one who is begotten, and the Spirit is the one who who. Uh, proceeds from the Father and the Son and the Spirit, but these three persons are so indivisible, and John says it's so much so that Jesus' word will actually be the criterion 
that the Father uses on the day of judgment. We're going to see that in verse 48. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken spoken will judge him on the last day. Now that's remarkable. And Paul tells us in Romans 3.19 that in that day of judgment, every mouth will be stopped. Isn't that remarkable language? In the day of judgment, every mouth will be stopped. Question, in light of that, what will you say in that day when perhaps God asked you the question, why should I let you into my holy space? Why should I let you into my righteous space? Why should I let you into heaven? Well, Paul says, you're not going to say anything. You may plan to say something. You may plan to say, well, you, you need to look at what I've done. You need to see my, my works. You need to see how moral I was in comparison to those around me. Paul says, no, you won't say anything in that day. When you see him for what he is, every mouth will be stopped. It will be closed. Indeed, to rely on your works is to reject Jesus outright. And to reject Jesus is to reject God. Again, notice verse 48. The word that I've spoken will judge him on the last day. Now again, this, first, this verse here is almost identical to chapter 3, verse 18, where it says, whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And now he's saying that judgment will come based on the word of Christ. But I want you to notice this language of last day. Fearful language. I spoke of it earlier. We had a last day of reckoning before two a days. And on that day, the coaches would see your works. What have you done? Well, that's nothing in comparison to this last day. And we should all know that there will be a last day. Now, what John means here by last day is not what uh, I heard uh, the governor Arnold Schwarzenegger mean by last day in a conversation I heard this week that he had with Danny DeVito. Those are two uh, wise men talking. Um, Danny DeVito asked Arnold, what's in the future for us? And... Arnold, waxing eloquently, responds this way, nothing. You're six feet under. Anyone that tells you something else is a liar. When people talk about, I will see them again in heaven, it sounds so good. But the reality is, we won't see each other again after we're gone. I will miss everything. To sit with you here, that will one day be gone. And to have fun and go to the gym and to pump up 
to ride my bike on the beach, to travel around to see interesting things all over the world. Arnold recognizes there's a last day. Yes, there is a last day. But it's the day of judgment when we are ushered in to eternity based on the verdict, based on the reckoning. That's where Arnold is tragically wrong. It doesn't just end. There will be a day of reckoning. And in the new heavens and new earth, Arnold Schwarzenegger will not be a championship bodybuilder. He will not be a Hollywood star. He will not be a former governor. In that day, he will be an image bearer who either bowed the knee to Jesus or rejected God's only provision for sin. And because this is true, we, we must live with that day of reckoning in mind. It has to inform our lives. Yes, a day of promise, eternal life. We've got to keep those tensions together. But it's a day of judgment. J.C. Ryle says it much more eloquently than I could ever say. There is a last day. The world shall not always go on as it does now. Buying and selling, sowing and reaping, planting and building, marrying and giving in marriage. All this shall come to an end at last. Banks shall at length close their doors forever. Stock exchanges shall be shut. Parliaments, he, he was in England, shall be dissolved. Well would it be if we thought more of this day. And let me just speak here for a moment on those comments. If you could look into the future and see that a tech, tech company, for example, that you're about to invest in is going to dissolve and, and fail, would you invest in it? There's not a single person here that would invest in that stock or tech company no matter how attractive it may appear today. And that is the fate of everything that's not in the kingdom of God. It's the fate of everything. Again, another Ryle statement. Paydays, birthdays, wedding days are often regarded as days of absorbing interest. But they are nothing compared to that day. All of every name and nation and people and tongue shall stand before the judgment seat of Christ. The book shall be open and the evidence is brought forth. Everyone shall give account of himself to God and all shall be judged according to their works. Now you say, I thought we were saved by grace, not by works. Indeed. We are saved by grace, but we will be judged on the basis of our works, by the deeds done in the body. So is there a contradiction there? No. Our works are like the fruit on a tree. If you see an apple on a tree, the apple doesn't make the tree an apple tree. The apple on the tree reveals it's an apple tree. And our works, our deeds done in the body will reveal what we were truly trusting in.
Our works will reveal what we were loving and what we were treasuring above all things. And there's only one way, Jesus says, to prepare us for that day. You need a perfect righteousness. You need your sins forgiven, which means you must come to Jesus, the one who fulfilled all righteousnesses and obedience, and then went to the cross and took the judgment for those who would trust in him. If you trust in him, you'll be prepared for that day. Jesus is saying it'll be his word that will be the criterion for judgment on that day. Of course, the question arises, what about those who never heard the gospel? Have you ever thought about that? Sometimes you'll, you'll see these, uh, these stats where there's seven plus billion people in the world and only uh, three billion people have, have heard the gospel. What about those who've never heard the gospel? Or it's often said this way. Uh, what about the innocent man on the island? My answer to that is the innocent man on the island doesn't need the gospel. The innocent man on the island will go to heaven. And that just shocked you. But let me tell you, there's no innocent man on the island. The thing that makes us equal in essence and glory is that we're all equal image bearers. No matter what your uh, skin color is or what your ethnic background is, your cultural background, we're all equal in dignity before God because we're image bearers. But because Adam was our father, we all have the same sin nature. There is no innocent man on the island. There is no man who does not have a sin nature, who's born with guilt and corruption. So the question is, what about the sinful man on the island? That's the one we should be worried about. That's who we need to concern ourselves with. And let me say this, those who do not know the gospel will not be held accountable for not knowing the gospel. They'll be held accountable for the revelation they do have. And Romans tells us that God has revealed himself to all people in creation and in their conscience. And so if you have never heard the gospel, you're still subject to the, to the uh, judgment of God. But the one who has heard the gospel, we held at an even higher account. Uh, where do I get that? Well, texts like Matthew where Jesus says, Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the works that have been done among you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes long ago. Therefore, it will be more tolerable for them on the day of judgment. And so, everyone will be judged who does not hide themselves in Jesus. But there will be a degree of judgment that is more severe based on the revelation that that person has. Which means... Americans are in a world of hurt who do not embrace the Lord Jesus Christ. That brings us to the final point. To believe in Jesus is to believe in God, is to be de delivered from the power of darkness, is to be saved from judgment. But finally, it's to obey God. Notice we in verse 49. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. 
We saw earlier, again, this is a review, chapter 6, verse 16, or chapter 7, verse 16. My teaching is not mine, but is his who sent me. How awful, how awful is the sin of despising the word of Christ. Indeed, in the last verse of this first section of John, the final verse of this summary epilogue, we see something sobering. The offer of salvation is indeed an invitation, but it's also a command. Verse 50, and I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Let me just, for 30 seconds, speak to the grammar here. He says, what I say, therefore, I say, that's present tense. And why is that important? That tells you that he continues to say. These are words for us today. He is saying them even now. It's present tense. It's been present tense for 2,000 years. These words are as binding today as they were when he originally spoke them. But notice, I say only what the Father has told me. Has told me is the perfect tense. Now, what does that mean? Well, English doesn't have a perfect tense. Greek does. Perfect tense is something that's happened in the past and has permanent effects. All right? In other words, it has abiding, ongoing effects forever. So what the Father has told Jesus in the past, it continually, it, even today, 2023, is binding. And Jesus is speaking today, even now, what the Father told him. These words are words of authority. And notice, he uses the language of command as we close out this section. I know that his commandment is eternal life. This reminds me of 1 John 3, verse 23, where John writes, and this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. Now, why would it be a command? Because every image bearer created by God through the agency of the son of God is under his authority. That's why it's a command. Now, we're like Augustine, command what thy will and will what thy command. But the, does not in any way discount the fact it's a command. And that's why Paul will say later in Acts 17, he commands all people everywhere to repent. And so the gospel is an invitation. I want you to remember that. He's inviting you to have your sins forgiven. He's inviting you to, to, to receive a righteousness, the only righteousness that can stand in the day of judgment. He's inviting you to do that this morning. But it's more than an invitation. He's commanding you to do that because he is your God who created you. He has all authority over you. And there's only one, I tell my children, there's only one response to authority. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. Unless that authority is calling you to do something to disobey God. Acts 5.29. Well, this is the ultimate obedience to God. And you have one response. is to bow the knee and say, yes, Lord. I want to give you an opportunity to do that as Adam and the musicians come forward. Uh, we've seen today 
in a summary passage, and I love John's way of concluding this section, we've seen that to obey Jesus, to believe in Jesus, is to believe in God. It's to be delivered from the power of darkness. Uh, to, to believe in Jesus is the way to, to avert judgment, to be delivered from judgment. And it's the way to obey God. But you have to respond to him. And you must respond to him through two means or two ways. And there are the two sides of the same coin, repentance and faith. You repent of your sin and you trust in Jesus and his provision who died on the cross for sinners, satisfying God's wrath that you deserve. Won't you come this morning as we stand and sing? Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.